Thanks, Kirsten. So as Dean mentioned, my name's Kelsey. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and uh, I'm the pastor of other duties as assigned. Um, and uh, I have been lowering the average age of the staff at Rock Hill for almost two years now, um, which is crazy to think about. Um, and uh, what's also crazy is uh, um, Dean has uh, known my dad actually longer than I've known my dad. Um, and because they work together at Hardee's in Owatonna. Um, and if any of you know Dean, that's probably not the weirdest connection that he's had to somebody. So before we dive into this letter of Third John, would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Father, we thank you that we can come to this place and that we can read your word and sing your word and hear your word. God, we thank you that we have this place, that we have this community, that we have your Holy Spirit working in and through us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use this imperfect instrument to preach your word this morning. God, I pray that you would bless each one of us through Third John, through this letter that was written so long ago, but Lord is still speaking to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever met someone who left an impression on you? Uh, not like, wow, this guy's a jerk, or she's really smart. Uh, someone you walked away from a conversation thinking, man, I really wish I knew them better. I really wish I could spend more time with them. The way that they speak, the way that they carry themselves just makes you want to be around them. Uh, there's something about them that makes being their friend seem like a gift. There's probably somebody who you're friends with right now who fits that description. Uh, more than likely, it's the person you're married to. Uh, for me, one of these people is my friend Josh Drury. Uh, we met when I moved into a dorm room with him, uh, but we became friends by continuing to spend time together. From the moment that I met him, his love for people was infectious. He had a heart for others that made me jealous. The way that he lived and the quality of his character made me want to be around him more. On the flip side, there's also people that are difficult to be around. Uh, the people that I'm talking about are the, the ones that just rub you the wrong way. They could like the same bands that you do. They could be fans of the same sports teams. They could even love the same restaurants that you do. But their character, how they act, how they speak, it's like having a rock in your shoe. This constant, annoying, but small pain. And this is where the Bible intersects with our everyday lives. The qualities that humans find attractive in other people are often the same qualities that the Bible calls us as Christians to be examples of. And the qualities that the Bible often condemns are often the same ones that the world would find unattractive. As Dean talked about last week, it's important that we both live and speak in truth and love. It's important to know the truth and to be supremely dedicated to it. To know God's word and to let it wash over every part of your life. It's also important to love. To love your brothers and sisters in Christ. To love your friends and those who don't know Jesus. To love those who annoy and frustrate you. And so in the same spirit, we come to 3 John. This letter was written to an individual, Gaius, and was probably an introduction carried by Demetrius, who's mentioned in the letter. It's 
probably one of the more personal and casual books in the New Testament. And it gives us truly a picture of the day-to-day life of the early church. John is having a casual written conversation with one of his friends. We're able to see a glimpse of John's teaching in action, a glimpse of truth and love in gospel ministry, what it looks like for us to interact with someone who's doing a pretty good job of living out truth and love and someone who isn't. So as we read this passage today, the question is, what does it look like when we embody truth and love? What does it look like when we embody truth and love? If we agree that it's good and that we should do it, how do we recognize someone who is doing it? By their generous hospitality and humble goodness. Truth and love done well is something that's attractive and will draw others to it. And as people saved by Jesus, Christians should be embodying truth and love so that those who are outside see something that they want to be a part of. So as people who embody truth and love, first, we welcome others with generous hospitality. We welcome others with generous hospitality. Uh, this is one of the first things in Third John that Gaius is praised for. Uh, it's one of the most notable things that John commends. Gaius is this leader in a small church and someone who John's met before and he's developed a rapport with. And so when John is writing this letter, he's doing more than just greeting Gaius and helping introduce Demetrius, who we'll see later. He wants to encourage Gaius. John is a spiritual father, and he wants to make sure that Gaius is passing on the right things to the rest of the church. So he praises Gaius' generous hospitality. Looking at verses 5 and 6, he writes, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers— strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. So some men had gone to visit this church, and Gaius had welcomed them in, even though they were strangers to him. So John wants him to know that this is a good thing that he's done. He praises him not just for his hospitality, but for the quality of his hospitality. So what is hospitality? We can throw around this word pretty easily. I went over to their house. They were very hospitable. Our city group has good hospitality. Hospitality itself is measured by who you welcome in and how you make them feel. Hospitality is love shown to an outsider that makes them feel like an insider. So then how can hospitality be generous? Generosity is being quick to give and to meet others' needs. And so this generous hospitality is about more than just opening the door for someone and giving them a place to sit. It's about making sure that this person has everything that they need. In order to do that, you have to make sure that you know what someone needs. You have to actually care for them and care enough about them to try to know more so that you can actually be generous. Uh, If you were to come over to my place and you were thirsty... Uh, but you don't want to be impolite, so you've been quietly waiting as we talk about sports or music or whatever. And then I say, oh my goodness, you must be starving. And I hand you a full box of saltine crackers. That's not actually generous. Now you're just confused and probably a little frustrated. Your thirst is still there, and I've actually given you something that would make it worse. But hey, I gave you something. I spent something, I spent my hard-earned money on that box of saltine crackers, and you should be grateful. But I haven't actually been generous just because I've given you something. 
If I had taken the time to actually ask you, hey, can I get you something to eat or drink? And then let's say that I not only give you a nice cold glass of water, but uh, then I also give you a water bottle out of the fridge that you can take with you. You'd be grateful. Because not only have I met your need, but also went above and beyond what you were expecting. Generosity isn't just giving something, anything, but giving something that the person actually needs. Giving something that's actually helpful. And also giving in a way that you feel it. Giving so that you feel the loss of what has been given. So that you remember that you're just a steward of what God has given to you. We don't give out of the leftovers, but out of the best of what God has entrusted to us. And so that's what Gaius is being praised for. That's what John wants to see multiplied in his church and in every church. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. The call, the charge that John is giving is not just to open your door for anyone, but to treat them in a manner worthy of God. How can John say this? What does it even mean? It means treating everyone in a way that's consistent with God's character. Having a what would Jesus do moment. And John is able to say this to Gaius because he knows him. He's seen him already doing this. He's seen and he's heard about how Gaius has been living like Jesus. And that's how he starts the letter. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers, the one that Gaius had showed generous hospitality to, came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John's telling him, hey, I, I want you to know that because of your generous hospitality, it sounds like you're walking with Jesus well. It sounds like you're a good example of Jesus to the church that you're leading. And you don't understand how encouraging that is to me. This is all I want to hear about the people that I care about. And it's following that affirmation and encouragement that John can say, keep showing generous hospitality. John knows that Gaius will provide everything that these men need and more because it's what Jesus would do. If Gaius is already showing generous hospitality like Jesus, then he will continue to show generous hospitality. Imitating Jesus, Gaius has cared for the needs of these men and he's going to try to set them up well for their journey. He's not just going to meet their needs now, but also give them what they need for the future. And John isn't saying this so that Gaius can sleep well at night knowing that he's done a good job. He wants everyone else to act like Gaius as well, to live like Gaius is, for him to be an example that the rest of the church is following. And we see this in what he says about Diotrephes. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to have your name written in the Bible? I know there's no Kelsey, but a boy can dream. Now, imagine that your name is written in the Bible as a negative example. Yikes. And that's where we meet Diotrephes. Here's what we know about him. John writes, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. 
And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Oof. That's not what I'd want said about me. I think the most interesting part is what John is most strong in condemning. He says, it's bad that Diotrephes doesn't acknowledge my authority and the authority of the other church leaders and that he's speaking wicked nonsense against them. He says, which is also bad, but then he essentially says, but even worse than that, he's not welcoming other Christians and is working against those who would welcome them. Sure, it's bad that he's actively speaking against John, but can you believe it? He's unhospitable and stops others from being hospitable. Wouldn't you think it'd be the other way around? That Diotrephes isn't hospitable, and even worse than that, he's speaking against John and the disciple who Jesus loved. But that's not where John goes. The way that John speaks against Diotrephes also helps us see the importance of generous hospitality. So not only is this a good thing to do, but it's extremely important. Diotrephes isn't acting like Jesus. He doesn't get it. He's not living like he should, and his lack of hospitality is the proof. If we love Jesus, if we're followers of Jesus, then we should show generous hospitality toward everyone. And this applies to us personally, but also as a community. Uh, think about the last time you had someone over to your house. Uh, this isn't like to be judgmental or as a challenge, but think about it for a second. Uh, part of sharing life with others is sharing the space where life happens in. If we're going to live in the mess of life with other people, then a good step is to let others into the mess of your daily life. Uh, here's a secret. If you're worried that people will judge you based on the state of your house, they're also worried that you would judge them based on the state of their house. Be vulnerable. Set a tone of transparency and vulnerability with the relationship. Uh, here's why. A uh, fun story that I don't get to tell very often. So I mentioned before that I used to live with Josh Drury. Um, and we'll just say that his standard of cleanliness and mine are two very different things. Um, so every time my parents would come to visit, he would clean. Um, and his idea of cleaning was stuffing everything that was laying around into drawers and closets and getting it out of sight. Um, but the effect that it had was that the space no longer felt lived in. It felt sterile. It felt staged like those pictures of houses for sale. It no longer feels alive and welcoming. Sometimes the mess is part of the warmth. Uh, so hospitality is inviting others in, especially those who don't have places where they feel welcome and making them feel welcome. Taking someone who's an outsider, outside of your community, outside of your immediate circle, and bringing them in and making them feel like they belong there. So there's two parts to it. There's the environment that you're welcoming them into, and then there's the actions that follow. I'm going to tie in church here because this is where there starts to be some overlap between the personal and the community aspects. So what makes this community, Rock Hill Chester Park, a welcoming environment? What do you do to make someone feel like they belong here? Uh, the place that an outsider feels welcomed into is both the physical space and the people that own it. So if you came to my house, knocked on the door, and I threw open the door and said, hope you can find a place to sit, you look around and you see chairs stacked with empty Amazon boxes, a couple winter coats, and a stack of books. 
you're not going to feel like you should be there. Either by me or by my house, you're going to feel more like an intruder than a friend. And this is something that I think we should think about now rather than when someone new comes, because we should always be expecting that there's going to be somebody who needs to be hospitalized. I mean, that's not the right word. <laughs> we should always be expecting to welcome someone in, knowing ahead of time what will make them feel at home, what will make them feel comfortable. So that when someone comes to your house, it's so much easier to make them feel welcome because you've already thought about it. So think about the last time that you went to someone's house. What made you feel welcome? What made you feel like you belonged there? Was it something about the house itself? Was it something they said, something they did? What made you feel uncomfortable? Or the last time you visited another church, what put you at ease? Was there something that stood out as helpful or comforting? Maybe somebody greeting you at the door or being easy, easily able to find a place to seat? Good coffee? Or what made you feel out of place, uncomfortable, like you shouldn't be there? It's hospitality that isn't trying to win someone over, not trying to make someone like you. It's hospitality for the sake of someone else letting others know that they're seen, valued, and that there is a Savior who wants to bring them in, who wants to welcome them in. And so that's what Gaius is doing. He shows a generous hospitality that John praises him for and that John wants to see multiplied throughout the community and across the world. And so beneath this praise and encouragement is the character that drives that hospitality. Gaius and Demetrius, who we'll meet in a second, are praised for who they have proven themselves to be. Not just what they do or act, but the character that supports their actions. The character that reflects a life that's been changed by Jesus. And so number two, we treat everyone with humble goodness. We treat everyone with humble goodness. Uh, the main part where this shows up is verses 11 and 12, but really the whole passage is filled with this encouragement and language. Humble goodness sees the importance and value of others, looks to set others up well, and makes sure that good is multiplied in and through others. It's seen in the way that John talks about Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. It's also in what we know about Gaius, Demetrius, and Diotrephes. See, humble goodness is the foundation of this book. It's the foundation of generous hospitality. It's what good communities are built on. It's the quality that people have that's infectious. Someone who's good, a community that's good at generous hospitality is absolutely saturated with humble goodness. So first, humble goodness sees the importance and value of others. This concept is all over this letter. We see it first in the way that John addresses Gaius at the beginning. He shows genuine care for his health and for his well-being. And then there's the way that he encourages Gaius. He lets him know that it brings him joy that Gaius is walking in the truth. He's excited. He's encouraged by the fact that Gaius is walking well and that he's leading well. And as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's from this evidence that John knows Gaius will send the brothers off well. He'll treat them with the honor and value that they deserve. These men are probably missionaries who are passing through Gaius' church. And Gaius gets it. He gets the mission. 
And that's why it's important for these men to be going out preaching the name of Jesus. Gaius has been placed to support their mission and to help them do it. Then we've got John talking about Demetrius in verse 12. Demetrius is probably the one carrying this letter, and John wants him and everyone who reads it to trust him. To trust him because it's evident to everyone there that he does good and is walking with Jesus. John knows that Demetrius will be a very valuable ministry partner to Gaius, and he wants their relationship to hit the ground running. It's like if Pastor Dean were to introduce you to someone and start with, you two are going to get along great. That changes the tone of the introduction. Dean obviously sees something in both of you that he knows will click together immediately. So John wants Gaius to trust Demetrius and to know that they can get to work in this church immediately. Gaius doesn't have to wait to test Demetrius or wait to see if he, to get to know him, to be able to see if he is qualified, because he comes with a good introduction, a good recommendation. And John wants Demetrius to know also how valued and helpful he has already proven himself to be. And finally, there's the way that John ends the letter. Greet the friends each by name. How special is it to feel known and remembered by someone that you love and respect? My choir teacher in high school was known for something that he did with every incoming freshman class. Uh, He would get the list of new students and their pictures before the school year started, and he would memorize everyone's name and face. Then on the first day, he would welcome them by name as they came into his classroom. Now, I had gone to a private Christian school through eighth grade, And so to walk into a classroom on the first day in a totally new environment in this public high school and have a teacher greet me by name was extremely special. And so John holds up the positive example of Gaius and Demetrius. And he's also an example of how to do this well, of how to see the importance and value of others. And then he also is clear in his negative example of Diotrephes. Diotrephes doesn't see or understand the authority of John and the other leaders. And even worse than that, he doesn't see the value of the missionaries that have come at all. It says he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. That's the trifecta right there. Doesn't welcome the missionaries, doesn't allow others to welcome the missionaries, and even pushes those people out of the community because he doesn't see the importance of the mission or the value of the missionaries. So it's not just about knowing that others are important and valuable, but it's about doing something about it, showing genuine care for the people that you interact with, especially those that are maybe a little bit outside your circle or even on the fringe. What would it mean to someone that you work with if you asked them how they were doing and then asked a couple follow-up questions? helping them see that they are valued and loved. Maybe keep them in your prayers. Follow up later. And then for those that you're closest to, making sure that you encourage them and are building them up in specific things. I really appreciate that you do this well. I'm so glad that you are good at this. Reminding them that they are valued and important to you and reminding them of the ways that God has gifted them. And also, these don't have to be big, grand gestures. It doesn't always have to be something that you put a lot of time and effort into. Sometimes it's small things like greeting someone by name. 
showing a small kindness. Humble goodness also looks to set others up well. This shows in the way that Gaius acts toward the brothers, toward these missionaries, and in John's relationship to Gaius and Demetrius. It's a selflessness that sees the ways that God is using and has gifted others, and it joins in helping them succeed. In verses 3 through 8, Gaius is known for caring for the brothers and the strangers that come to his door. He helps provide for them and make sure that they have everything that they need and everything that they will need. He meets their physical needs so that they can focus on the work that's ahead of them, so that they can spend their time focused on the journey and work that God has set before them rather than on their physical needs. This is why we support missionaries globally and organizations here in the Twin Ports. It's why we do things like Advent Conspiracy. Because these organizations, these people are doing good work. And they're doing work that's already difficult. And if there are ways that we financially or physically can help, then we should. You may not be the person that God has called to be a missionary in Nepal or to organize a kitchen to feed those in need. But you are the person that God has called to support them. You're called to help set them up for success, to help them focus on the good work that they are doing rather than on their own needs. And it's not just setting others up well or trying to help them succeed physically, but also intangibly with the things that you can't count or quantify. In this book, John has served as a spiritual father, teacher, and mentor to Gaius and Demetrius. And John is the reason why they are walking in the truth and doing good, because he taught them the truth. And he modeled for them what it looks like to do good. And he's also the one that led them to Jesus, who showed them what faith looks like. But also in verse 10, he's promised to help deal with diatrophies. Uh, It sounds like Gaius has already tried, and John was hoping that a letter from him would help. And now it's gotten to the letter level that John will probably have to come in person. He's promising that help will come with his presence. That if he comes, he won't just ignore Diotrephes, but that he'll say something about it. He'll help them work through this situation well. Who are the people that you're pouring into? Or who are the people that look up to you as a spiritual leader, spiritual mentor? The people who you're helping learn truth. The people that you're helping to guide and care for spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. There are probably people in your life, whether you realize it or not, it's good to stop and think about that sometimes. Because you're hopefully the person that someone comes to for trust or trust for guidance or wisdom. And if you can't think of anyone, then maybe that's the challenge, to grow in maturity and in relationship with others so that you could be that person. Discipling and leading others who are younger in the faith is something that all Christians are called to do. So as Jesus said in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lastly, humble goodness also makes sure that good is multiplied in and through others. This is drawing from verse 11, but just like the other points, there's elements of it across the letter. But before that, let's look again at Diotrephes. So verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. 
And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. As John has been hammering over and over again, it's the selflessness displayed by Gaius that proves him to be a man changed by the gospel and a lover of Jesus. And with Diotrephes, it's his selfishness and hostility to those who are working for the sake of the gospel that makes him disqualified to be a leader in the church. He's not someone that you would want to imitate. And that's what John sums up in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Diotrephes can't be trusted because he hasn't proven himself to be doing good or to be making sure that others are doing good. He's not acting like someone who believes the gospel, as someone who's seen God, as John puts it. He's not a good person to follow because the church would be worse off if there were more people like him. However, if there were more people like Gaius, the church thrives and the gospel continues to go out far and wide. And that's part of the principle, that's part of why we have a principle around here at Rock Hill that we don't put anyone in authority who isn't willing to be under authority. The community works when everyone is submitting to one another and working to make sure that good is multiplied and that the gospel is preached. Gaius and Demetrius are good leaders and good examples to follow because they are doing good and helping others do good. They are humbly loving God and the community. They are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are making disciples who make disciples. They're doing the things that healthy disciples and healthy church communities do. Gaius and Demetrius are embodying truth and love. And the disciples that they make in the church look like truth and love too. They live centered around the truth, loving everyone that they come in contact with showing generous hospitality to strangers and brothers and treating them with humble goodness. And they're doing that, as they do that, they're making disciples that embody truth and love. They're drawing people into the truth of the gospel, to the beauty of life with Jesus. They're working against the selfish divisiveness of Diotrephes. They're what makes Diotrephes have to show his true colors. His selfishness can't hide when he's surrounded by Gaius and Demetrius. In the face of generous hospitality and humble goodness, divisiveness and selfishness are clearly seen as the ugly traits that they are. And the reality is is that we're all in danger of being more like Diotrephes than Gaius. We're all at risk of being selfish, divisive, unloving, untrue. It's so easy to read this letter and to think, geez, get a load of this guy. Glad I'm nothing like him. But the reality is, is that we're always able to be selfish, always able to be unloving, always able to be untrue. But thank God that he sent Jesus and the Holy Spirit so that we don't have to be. So that if Jesus is Lord of your life and that you are saved and believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that you can be loving, that you can know and speak the truth, that you can genuinely welcome in the stranger, the outsider, and the brothers and sisters and make them feel at home. Because someday we will all eternally be welcomed home with Jesus, welcomed into a new creation as loved and valued friends 
brothers and sisters.